BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hey everybody, Kevin here with This One's a Doozy. And if you don't already know, we offer two exclusive episodes every month for anybody who subscribes to our Patreon. If you are not subscribed to Patreon, it's really simple. You can visit the link in our bio on Instagram and Facebook, um, or you can just go to patreon.com slash doozypod, and you can subscribe for just a few dollars a month and get access to those special episodes that are not available anywhere else. But every once in a while, we like to offer a little peek behind the curtain with a special episode from Patreon for the whole world to hear. And that is what this week's episode is. So without any further ado, this is our special Patreon exclusive episode unlocked for everybody to hear. Enjoy. Welcome back to This One's a Doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. And we talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. Yep. Patreon exclusive episode eight. Yeah. We're cruising on these. I'm excited. I I feel like I'll feel really good when we hit Patreon exclusive 10. I know. Me too. That'll be like a really cool uh, checkpoint benchmark. Yeah. Whatever word you want to use for that. Yeah. We also got a couple of new patrons in the last week. Ooh. And I actually, this is something that is relevant to all of our patrons. So I'm going to put a poll up soon to just see what you guys think the general consensus of uh, an welcoming new patrons on a regular episode, like mm. once a week announcing new patrons and like welcoming them. I know that a lot of shows do that. I know a lot of shows that have Patreon pages that don't do that. Yeah. And I've never cared one way or the other for podcasts that I've supported on Patreon. I haven't cared to be announced or not to be announced. But I'm just curious what everybody thinks, if that's something that they would like or not. Yeah. So. That's a cool idea. I'll be putting that up on a poll here soon. I'll also be putting the June and May giving all that stuff will be updated this week. We're still in like a crazy sprint. Yes. But we're making things happen. We're doing it. We're still doing it doing it oh well my love what are you drinking tonight so i ordered a mango dragon fruit refresher from starbucks Ooh, those are really good like good. a couple times a year i'm like okay i want one of those mm-hmm. 
And I didn't order it with lemonade, but they accidentally made it with Mm. lemonade. And it's really good. I don't think I'd order it all the time this way because it is like very sweet and like Mm. a lot, like a lot of flavor stimulation. Oh, okay. Okay. (laughs) Like I prefer the regular refresher, but it is very good and very like summery. Mm. So I do like that. It does sound good. I might try it later. You should. Uh, But what do you have? Oh, yeah. I got uh, some uh, dough ball cookie dough flavored whiskey. Wow. Yes. That's fancy. Very good. It's very sweet. Um, Except for it wouldn't be you. You would still think it tasted like fire and gasoline. Mm, Beautiful. I think it tastes like fire, gasoline, and cookie dough. Wow. Yum. (laughs) Spicy cookie dough. Spicy cookie dough. (laughs) Nice. No, it is really good. It's got a, it's, it's, it's almost too sweet, but uh, I don't believe you. <laughs> I have a sweet tooth, so it doesn't bother me all that much. <laughs> I'm so glad you like it. I, I know you are so glad I like it. It's like it. if you want, it's like for someone who wants to enjoy cookie dough, but they want it to hurt a little bit. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. 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 It needs to burn coming down a little. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> all right. You got uh, some headline hijinks for us today? I do. You didn't like that. That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody liked that. I won't do it again. I promise everybody. (laughs) This is a safe place to try things and then never do them again if they don't work out. (laughs) There's been plenty of those. That's true. We cut most of them. We do. This one's staying in This one's staying in. We're (laughs) immortalizing this very special moment. Okay, so Headline Hijinks is the segment where I read two bonkers headlines and then you have to decide which one you think is real And which one you think that I made up. Okay. I'll read each headline twice and then you can guess. All right. Headline one. Parrots on the loose. Independent living community under lockdown until flighty offenders apprehended. Headline two. The owls are not what they seem. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Those are excellent. I know. I like how you kept them them both in the bird family too. I like to try and do related. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Say them again. Say them your second right. time like so, you. So here like we go. You need to. Headline one. Parrots on the loose. Independent living community under lockdown until flighty offenders apprehended. Headline two. The owls are not what they seem. All right. <laughs> I think. Oh, gosh. You could have made up either of them. But I think the one that you made up is the first one, the longer one. Dang it. You're right. Yes. Good job. Proud of you. Yeah, thank you. The I, Owls Are Not What They Seem is an incredible headline. <laughs> that is a great headline. It should be a book title. It would be a great tattoo, mm-hmm. a poster, <laughs> a sticker. I would buy all those things. So 10 out of 10 stars yeah, to yeah. the to the writer of that headline. It's an excellent headline. I had the feeling that you wrote the first one because of the two words, flighty offender. I feel like that just has... That's got a haliness to it in its cadence and how it rolls off the tongue. I was like, that that's that's a pairing of words that you would use. So, but I also don't normally make puns. And so true. I thought you would be like, oh, she didn't make up the pun. <laughs> I really thought I'd get you with that. <laughs> well done. All right. So are you ready for today's Patreon exclusive I'm episode? I'm ready. Yes. All right. So let's just hop right in. Dreams. The purpose and significance of dreams has been widely discussed for millennia. In some ancient cultures, dreams were a space outside of ourselves where we can gain a better understanding of ourselves and of our connection to the world around us. 
The ancient Greeks and Romans shared the belief that dreams were both a premonition and a visitation from the dead. Today, according to modern-day scientific materialist theories, dreams are our brain's attempt at cleaning up extra neurotransmitters, consolidating important information, and keeping us alert to danger. (laughs) That's far from an exhaustive list, but what happens when a dream, or in today's story, a nightmare, turns into reality? When a nightmare precedes a life-shattering reality, one mother goes to unorthodox lengths in her quest for answers and justice. This is the story of the Bosco murders. Hmm. Hang on, Kev. This one's a doozy. Okay. Wow. This already sounds like it's going to be just like super trippy. It's hard to believe that it's real, but Hmm. it absolutely is. Okay. So we're going to open this story up by talking about the mother and her disturbing dream. Antoinette Bosco, or Tony, was asleep in her Connecticut home when she had a terrible nightmare sometime in the summer of 1993. Hmm. In her dream, her adult son, John, was standing off in the distance. He was wearing caveman clothing, like animal hides, a big club, the whole the whole deal. Hmm, okay. She watched as her son was being approached by a large mechanical thing like a huge machine from behind. The minute that she saw the machine, she was immediately terrified, but John didn't seem to see it or know that it was there at all. In the dream, Tony then began crying and screaming at John, trying to get him to notice what was coming behind him, but it was like he couldn't hear her at all. Hmm. He just stood there, his back facing the incoming danger. Before he ever knew that it was there, the machine ate him whole, which jolted Tony awake. Yeah, that would be one of those scary dreams that would wake you up too. For sure. When she woke up, she was drenched in sweat, seriously affected by the nightmare she just had. As the days marched on, the dream kept popping up in Tony's mind. She tried to convince herself that it was nothing, that it was just a weird, terrible dream, but it wasn't real. But the dream wouldn't leave her mind. It made her wonder if maybe the dream actually did mean something. Hmm. In the meantime, John and his wife, Nancy, had their own issues to worry about. So John and Nancy Bosco met in Boulder, Colorado back in 1990. At the time, Nancy Peterson was 29 years old and was working as a computer telemarketer. She was described as super outgoing and lively. She loved hiking and the outdoors, and she was extremely beautiful. She had aspirations of modeling and had moved to Denver right out of college where she found a job that was pretty much made just for her. She loved people and was a brilliant saleswoman, and so the telemarketing job was just right for her. She had developed a system where if somebody wasn't sold on the product over the phone, she would offer to bring the products to the person's home to like demonstrate it. She Hmm. had like a whole presentation that she would bring into people's homes, which I think that it was computer parts. Okay. Which is interesting considering it's the early 90s. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So that was like a probably a very interesting time Mm -hmm. to be offering that kind of technology just to like any old Right. To anybody in their home. Yeah. Because it's also not everybody is exposed to it. Right. People are like, this is the first time they've ever seen it. Right. And so seeing it in person was like her her thing. She would land sale after sale after Mm -hmm. sale when she would come in and show people what she had to offer. And it was this that led Nancy Peterson to the home of then 38-year-old furniture maker, John Bosco. From the minute that Nancy walked into his home to give her presentation, both John and Nancy were instantly smitten with each other. The two hit it off immediately. And by December of 1990, the two got married. It's like (laughs) they fell in love right away. Yeah. And like everything that their family members have said about their their little love story, is is just that. They literally met, instantly fell in love. They had a blast together. 
They loved each other so very much. Wow. So sweet. That's sweet. So John had previously been married, and at the time that John and Nancy met, he was in the heat of an extremely intense and even volatile custody battle with his ex-wife over the custody of their two young children. Hmm. But this didn't deter Nancy in the slightest. It was a heavy season, but John and Nancy believed that they could take it on together. As the next couple of years came and went, John and Nancy were debating on moving to Montana. The decision was made concrete when they came across a listing for an incredibly beautiful home in Big Fork, Montana, that just so happened to already have a woodworking shop on the property and had already been zoned for commercial use, which would make John's career easy because he could run his business right out of their home. Yeah. It was also always a dream of John's to own property with like a big, beautiful, wide open space and like a view. And so this house and the land that it sat on was just that. And so just like that, it was settled. Hmm. The family would relocate to Montana in the early part of 1993. The Boscos packed up their belongings and quickly relocated to their new home. They were immediately in love with their home and the property, and they could see themselves truly making it their own. Mm -hmm. Like this is where they wanted to plant their roots. But it was not without frustration. It turns out that the property had not actually been zoned for commercial use, which would make John's woodworking venture from home an illegal operation. Oh, no. But since this was kind of like the main deciding factor on the Boscos moving to Montana at all, this was a huge setback for them. Hmm. John reached out to the previous owner, a man by the name of Joe Clark, to confront him about selling the home under false pretenses. And Joe straight up denied any intentional wrongdoing. Hmm. He claimed that he never lied in regards to the zoning of the property from the beginning, but still, this was a huge frustration for the Boscos. It was a true, like, well, now what kind of moment. Mm -hmm. Very shortly into the move and at the height of the frustration with the zoning ordeal, in August of 1993, the Boscos had planned to make a trip back to Colorado Mm -hmm. for a custody hearing and so that they could pick up the kids and bring them to Montana to visit the new house. Oh, yeah. So it was kind of like a whirlwind time for them. They had like a lot on their plates on top of trying to get settled into a new home. Yeah. Tony was in the loop on John's life, even from afar. And even she knew that he was extremely busy. And so since he was also in like a high stress moment, Mm -hmm. she kind of just decided to back off, give him a little bit of space. Yeah. And this was kind of at the same time that Tony was wrestling with what she'd seen in the dream. But she's like, I'm Mm, just going to give him space. He's got a lot going on. He'll call me and update me. Everything's fine. Yeah. She hadn't heard from him for a stretch of time. And then on August 19th, 1993, she received the worst phone call that a mother could ever get. It was a call from the Flathead County Sheriff's Department. They informed Tony that they'd made a horrible discovery. John and Nancy had been found in their home and they'd been murdered. Oh, no. One of the first officers on scene, Sergeant Daniel Yurman, had received a call from a concerned neighbor earlier that day. The neighbor had noticed that the Bosco's vehicle appeared like it had been all packed up for a big trip, but it had been sitting in the driveway in that same spot for several days. Mm. So it was just very strange. Like the whole car's packed, like it's going somewhere, but it hasn't gone anywhere for a week. Right. After about a week, the neighbors started to feel off about it. And so they decided to walk over and check on the Boscos to make sure that everything was okay. When they did, they noticed that a window to the home was wide open. But what was worse was that they noticed a very strong, nauseating smell and flies kind of surrounding oh, the window. Yeah. Police arrived at the Bosco's home at 260 Kelly Drive and knocked on the door. 
When nobody answered, Sergeant Yerman walked around the perimeter of the home and he noticed the same thing that the neighbor had with the flies and the smell. Mm -hmm. And so he entered the home. As he made his way around the inside of the house, there was no sign of the Boscos. That is, until he made his way up the stairs and into the master bedroom where John and Nancy were discovered absolutely covered from head to toe in maggots and flies. It was a gruesome scene, obviously. There was blood splatter all over the walls. And while the crime scene painted a very clear picture of what had likely happened to John and Nancy in their final moments, there were virtually no clues as to who had done this and why anyone would want to do it to begin with. Gosh, that's miserable. Yeah, it's it's really bad. So at first, Sergeant Yearman believed that he had stumbled upon the aftermath of a murder-suicide situation. John's body was laying in the couple's bed, and his skin was black in coloration from several days' worth of decomposition. Mm -hmm. He had a single gunshot wound to his head, and then Nancy was also in the bed, but she had a pillow covering her face. And when he pulled the pillow back, he discovered that she too had suffered from at least one gunshot wound to her head. But she was nowhere near as decomposed as John was, Mm -hmm. which he noted as odd. And that was kind of the thing that made him wonder if she had killed him and then taken her own life. Yeah. Just the difference in decomposition. Mm. The Montana Department of Criminal Investigation, or the DCI, was called in and they quickly got to work to try to figure out what had happened and why. Agent Arlen Gray-Danis was one of those officers. He said that the smell in the master bedroom of the Bosco home was so strong and so gross that it literally slowed the investigation down considerably. It was truly a grisly crime scene. Given the state of the bodies, the fact that John's body was much further along in decomp than Nancy's was, it was difficult to piece together a timeline of the crime. Mm -hmm. And that was the thing that led police to believe that this was a murder-suicide situation. The problem with that theory was that there was no weapon. John owned a three fifty seven Magnum that he kept in his home, and it was nowhere to be found. If Nancy had done this, there would be no way for the gun to disappear. Like, it would be in her hand or next to her or somewhere that they could find it. And so this had to have been done by somebody else. Mm, It was discovered that Nancy was shot in the face and in the back, and two bullets were recovered from the scene. After doing a thorough sweep of the home, investigators discovered that the window to the basement bathroom was open. They assumed that this was how the killer got in. Whoever had done this had also cut the phone lines and turned off the electricity to the home. Yeah. Which, something about that is so scary to me. That's really scary. Yes. Like, ugh. Like, the isolation of that and the helplessness of that is very unsettling. Yeah, you feel like... We live in a world now, and I mean now even more so than in the 90s, mm-hmm. where everything is so interconnected. Mm-hmm. And to get isolated in this day is like just darn near impossible, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> let alone when it gets done to you. You're mm-hmm. like, oh no, this yeah. is not good. So, right, wow. So another thing that the investigators noticed was that nothing had been stolen from the home at all. So as far as the motive was concerned, whoever did this was not motivated by any sort of financial gain, Hmm. meaning this attack was absolutely personal. It had to be. Someone who knew them had wanted them dead and had committed a heinous double murder in their own home. On the day following the discovery of the bodies, John and Nancy's autopsies were complete. The autopsies revealed that they had both been dead for a full week and that the night of their murder was August 12th which was the night before they were planning on going to Colorado, which is really, really sad timing. Yeah. 
it was determined that they had died on the same night, despite the differences in decomp on the remains. It was believed that since Nancy's remains had partially been covered with a pillow after she was killed, her wounds were not out in the open like John's was, which made it harder for flies and other small organisms to go to work, which slowed down her decomp considerably. That that was where my mind went almost Mm -hmm. right away. Well, she was totally covered. Like that's Mm -hmm. different entirely. So I'm obviously no expert, but that was just where my brain went. So that makes sense to me. Yeah. It was also determined that John was shot while he was asleep, likely at point blank range. I've seen it described as execution style. Mm -hmm. However, Nancy was not asleep at the time that she was killed. It's believed that after John was shot, Nancy woke up to discover an intruder in her home and her husband dead in bed beside her. Due to evidence recovered at the scene, it's believed that she partially sat up in bed and turned to grab the landline phone on her bedside, but was shot in the upper back kind of like in the shoulder area. Mm-hmm. And then when she turned around to face her attacker, she was shot again, this time in the cheek. Equally as disturbing as the timeline of the Bosco's final moments was the astonishing lack of clues left behind by the attacker. There was not one single fingerprint left anywhere in the home that didn't belong to John or Nancy. Wow. It was also determined that though John's gun had been stolen, that it was not the one used to commit the murders. Hmm. The gun was nowhere to be found. That's... Okay, so the, so likely the only thing in the house that had been stolen was John's gun, mm-hmm. which was just stolen so that they could have another weapon, right? but not for them. Yeah. Oh, man. That's like really creepy to think about. Well, and for investigators, they have literally nothing to work with Yeah. besides the crime scene and the autopsy report. The only thing that could ever happen would be if they could somehow... If 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 John's gun ever got used sure. somewhere else and they were able to trace that, that's the only thing at mm-hmm. this point. For so that's wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Some crazy like stealth work and oh yeah. That's really scary. So when Tony received that terrible call, she was instantly struck with shock and immediate grief. She couldn't wrap her mind around what she was being told. How could her son, who she loved so deeply, be dead? And her daughter-in-law, who meant so much to her and and their entire family. Yeah. How and why would someone do something so terrible? Tony was so paralyzed with shock and sadness. And after receiving the call, she said that she laid unmoving for a full hour after getting off the phone with the Flathead County Police. Oh, yeah, that's really sad. I know. My mom heart just... So heavy. So Tim Peterson, Nancy's brother, who she was very close with, was struck with the same terrible shock and sadness as Tony. He had the horrible job of telling his children that not only were their aunt and uncle dead, but that they'd been murdered. Mm. Which like so gut wrenching, heartbreaking. Well, and that's like kind of next level. Like it's sad to hear of somebody that you love has passed away. Right. But it like adds. I, I mean, I've never experienced it, so I can't speak out of that experience, but I can Mm -hmm. only imagine the next level of like, wait, why, why were they murdered? Like Mm -hmm. there's just something extra. Why would somebody want to do that? Why, how could someone do that? (sighs) Yeah. And the kids were really little and Nancy was like the cool aunt. They loved her and she like doted on those little kids. Yeah. Yeah. It's really heartbreaking. So Big Fork, Montana is located in the Rocky Mountains and is known as one of the 50 great towns in the Western United States. (laughs) Every year, millions of tourists come through the area where Big Fork is located to appreciate the Glacier National Park or to enjoy some of the many outdoor adventures the Flathead Valley has to offer. 
many tourists do end up becoming residents, and this is kind of what happened for the Boscos after they had first Mm. visited. The sense of adventure and beauty permeated the vast and peaceful landscapes, and they couldn't resist the call when it came. Yeah. When they moved in, apart from the obvious logistical stressors with the zoning situation and with the custody battle, they were happy. Yeah. They loved their home and the area of Big Fork where they lived, and as far as anyone knew, they really didn't have any enemies. When they first looked into potential suspects, John's ex-wife was looked into for a short minute. Sure. They had gone through a nasty divorce and a brutal custody battle, which had been going on for six full years at the time of John's death. Wow. And from, I've seen some conflicting reports on this, but according to most of them, John had recently been awarded custody. Oh. After it was official, he enrolled the children in a school in Montana. But in the spring of 1993, the ex-wife made her way to Montana, unenrolled the children, and then took them back to Colorado with her. And then that kind of like reopened the custody Mm. battle again. Does that make sense? Uh, Yes, but it sounds crazy. It does sound crazy. And I feel bad for for both adults and for both kids. Like that, it was just... Really stressful. That's a lot of drama. That is a lot of drama. Like, I just feel like as a parent, I can I can put myself into either parent's shoes. I don't know the ins and outs of their dynamic and yeah, their relationship. Yeah. But just the idea of my kid being, like, taken across state lines and me mm-hmm. taking them back. And then the parent who just had the kids across state lines has to go back and get them. Yeah. It's just very messy. Yeah. And so the investigators thought that maybe the ex-wife had hit some kind of extreme mental wall and just snapped. Yeah. But after they looked into the situation, the ex-wife was ruled out as a suspect completely because hmm. there was really no evidence at all that yeah. she could even be remotely tied to it. And so though their relationship was volatile, it wasn't volatile to the point of murder. Yeah. Okay. So another lead came from a neighbor who had informed police that Nancy had confided in her that almost every day, a car full of rowdy teenagers would drive past Nancy and John's house and honk their horn and scream at Nancy if she was outside. Hmm. And she also had concerns that they would kind of like sit in the woods behind their home and watched her when she would sunbathe on the deck. Ooh. So creepy. Yeah, that's creepy. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the King of Sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. She had confided in friends that she'd been made to feel uncomfortable and that she was worried that she was being stalked. And so maybe this was a case of teenage infatuation gone horribly awry. Oof. When police followed up on this tip, it was clear that the boys were being little creeps in following Nancy around and in harassing her to some degree, but they definitely were not guilty of murder, let Mm. alone double murder. Okay. They also looked into Joe Clark, the previous owner of the Bosco's home that had allegedly lied to them about the commercial zoning of the property 
prior to the purchase of the home. Mm -hmm. This was a huge deal to the Boscos. Like I said before, the main reason that they were even there at all, the reason that they knew that they could afford the home, all hinged on John being able to operate his business out of his property. Yeah. He had been commissioned to create several longbows for archers. And so if he could do this out of his own home, the family would have their livelihood secured. But due to the zoning bylaws and the fact that he was informed otherwise, like before mm. they bought the home, mm-hmm. basically he didn't find out until after yeah. that well, that was wasn't the case. Yeah. yeah. So it's a huge problem. So after this, John expressed on more than one occasion that he was extremely upset with Joe Clark and he would not back down until the situation was resolved. And in fact, there was an ongoing lawsuit about the zoning laws at the time that Joe Clark sold the home, despite being told not to sell it until the matter was resolved. Oh. And John knew about it. Wow. Mm-hmm. So he so he did, I guess you can't really say that he did, but he the allegations look to be true. The allegations look to be true, at least to a degree. Mm-hmm. And there's some, once again, some conflicting reports that John in person confronted Joe Clark about this. Mm-hmm. Others say that it was over the phone. Others say that he intended to confront Joe about it. Okay. And so I feel like if Joe Clark was going to be seriously looked into, it would only really make sense if John had approached him in person, in my opinion, I suppose. Yeah. And so John also had informed family shortly before he died that he was considering filing his own civil suit against Joe Clark and his family. Mm. So could this be another motive for the murder? When Joe Clark was approached by police, he informed them that his family also operated a woodworking business, but after their shop had burnt down, it led the Clarks to list their home and to look to the future of their business. Hmm. He claimed that he fully disclosed the zoning bylaws to the Boscos long before they had signed on the dotted line and bought the home. After interviewing the Clark family, Joe in particular, he was also ruled out as a suspect. Hmm. Investigators believe that there was a miscommunication somewhere, but that Joe Clark could not have been guilty of the heinous double murder either. Yeah. Very interesting. Wow. So three weeks after the murder on September 3rd, 1993, Tony Bosco decided that she needed to go to John and Nancy's home. She had that mother's urge to find concrete answers as mm-hmm. to what happened to her children. And like she loved Nancy like, like she was her own, yeah. really. yeah. And so she and two of John's brothers flew out of Connecticut into the Big Fork house and walked around inside. She thought maybe she could pinpoint if something had been stolen that maybe police had missed. Yeah. Or that maybe she'd be able to gather more of a sense of what had happened on the night of the murders. She walked through the home, and as soon as she and her sons walked into the master bedroom and saw the blood splatter still splashed across the wall Oof. and blood stains on the bed, Tony was brought down to her knees, oh. literally. Partially by utter horror and grief, but almost more so by the distinct gut feeling that she was in the very presence of evil itself. Hmm. It's like an overwhelming cloud of evil. Yeah. Well, there's got to be something just so upsetting and like. um, Almost too real. Yeah. Like like it's denser than reality Mm -hmm. to be in that kind of a space where something like that has actually happened Mm -hmm. and for it to be people that you love. I think of like uh, situations where a funeral home might say you should do a closed casket like you don't want to see the remains. Mm -hmm. You want to remember them as they were like in the cases of a serious accident Mm -hmm. or, you know, something that there was major bodily harm to a person right before they died. And I feel like it's almost the same thing. Like I don't blame Tony at all for wanting to go and just be 
in yeah. the home and yeah. look around and like wanting to be helpful and finding answers at all, just right. to be clear. But I also do think that there is something about seeing the gore of it yeah. that would send anybody in to their knees. And yeah. that's exactly what that's happened. really sad. Very, very sad. So as a small but steady stream of leads came in, the Flathead Sheriff's Department and state police would thoroughly follow up on each of them. But the leads kept pointing only to dead ends. Mm. And soon the well of tips dried up entirely, causing the case to go cold. Three months after the murder in October of 1993, Tony was so desperate for answers, or at least some level of closure. On top of the immense grief of losing a child the second time in her life that she'd been faced with such a horrible loss, mm. she carried some level of guilt that if she had told John about her strange dream, that maybe she could have prevented the murders which obviously there was nothing different right. that she could have done. Right. Like there's not even a hint of her being able to change the outcome yeah. of the story, like in any way. But I do understand once again, right. as a mom, like I completely understand mm-hmm. that line of thinking. To have a really upsetting dream that makes you, that jolts you awake. That, and it's like your worst fear anyways. Yeah. And I mean, just think how hard it is to remember a dream in general. Mm-hmm. So to remember one that lingers with you mm-hmm. for, for ever. And it keeps bothering you. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I get it. I get that she is, is, is jumping to, I wish I would have said something about that. Well, I think part of that too is the complete lack of answers. Mm-hmm. And so anybody's mind is going to try and fill in the blanks. Right. You know, with anything, even if it isn't sensical right. Or, or right or true. Yeah. Our brains will still do that. Well, and even even non-spiritual people will will be open to the thought of a premonition. Something sure. that just kind of like the timing was weird. Yeah, it totally is. So oh. So since all of the verifiable leads were long since gone, Tony decided to take a more unorthodox approach. She contacted a psychic, hmm. but not any psychic. She contacted a very famous one by the name of Danian Brinkley. While Tony was and is a practicing Christian and was nervous about kind of like messing around Mm -hmm. in the spiritual side of things, something about Danian really stood out to her. Hmm. Danian became a psychic after a life-altering incident that happened decades earlier. In 1975, Danian was struck by lightning while he was on the phone. He claimed that the lightning strike was so severe that it actually lifted him off of the ground for a few seconds. Oh, wow. He was quickly sent to the hospital where he actually died. He was dead for 28 full minutes before he was successfully revived. And from that point forward, Danian Brinkley claimed to have the ability to touch a person and tell their future. Oh, geez. His description of his abilities is more complicated than that, of course, but that's the long and short of it. Yeah. After making contact with Danian by phone, Tony and her sister agreed to meet with him in hopes of gaining some insight into the murders. Hmm. While Danian did his psychic thing with Tony, her sister took detailed notes of the whole experience. Danian claimed, like I said, that when he touches someone, he can gain access to their consciousness. Mm -hmm. And though he primarily sought insights into the future, he believed that he could potentially reach back into the past. And with the help of his abilities, maybe he could uncover some clues Hmm. about the Bosco murders. Wow. Very, very wild. Very wild. So as they're sitting there, Danian began speaking about what he was seeing in his mind's eye. He claimed to have been walking through the night of the murder, but through the eyes of the killer. He perfectly described the layout of the Bosco home, starting with climbing into an open window and then proceeding through various rooms in the home. To be fair, there are details 
like some of the details at this point that would have been available to the public. Sure. Like just to be completely open about that. But he kept going. Hmm. He said that he climbed up the staircase and when he did, he caught a glimpse of himself in the mirror. Much to his shock, the person in the reflection was a very young man, probably between the ages of 18 and 20. Mm. He described his appearance as being thin with dark hair and inset eyes. He also sensed that the killer was familiar with the home and that the night of the murder was not the first time that the killer had been in the home and that the killer was not really led by a plan or by reason, but rather by a deep-seated instinct that to kill the people in the home was like his mission. Mm. He had to do as a compulsion more than a plan or a reason. And so that's what the killer did. He then claimed that the killer went to school in the Northwestern United States. He was a student. Hmm. So I just want you to hold on to all of that. Okay. We will recap through some of that, but like, hold on to that. Okay. Danian's final prediction was the thing that gave Tony the hope that she had been desperately in search of. Danian predicted that the killer would be apprehended in December of that very year, just a couple of short months away. Mm Mm-hmm. While Tony wasn't sure what to believe about her encounter with Danyan, she did feel like a level of safety mm-hmm. in feeling hope. Sure. Yeah. The first time since since the murders had taken place, like maybe justice actually will be served. Yeah. And she like allowed herself to feel hopeful to that effect. Mm. Wow. When Tony took this revelation to the police, they were obviously skeptical. Mm-hmm. We've talked about psychics and relying on their tips in true crime cases and the track record of a psychic tip like actually solving a crime isn't stellar. Mm-hmm, right. <laughs> but right. still they added quote skinny kid with inset eyes end quote to their case file. Hmm. As the next couple of months continued on, there were still no usable leads, but Tony held on to hope. And then something very shocking happened. In December mm-hmm. of 1993, the Flathead County Sheriff's Office received a call from police out in Newburgh, Oregon, involving a young college student who'd been bragging to his friends about a double murder that he'd committed back in Montana. What? So this was a 19-year-old student who went by the name of Shadow. Shadow had been in trouble with the police up in Newburgh due to some vandalism that he'd Mm -hmm. recently committed around town. It was learned that Shadow was a student at a small Christian college in Newburgh and that he'd been bragging to friends about some small crimes that he'd committed back home, such as drug use and driving his car around super fast. But his claims had started to escalate. He confided in a friend of his and to a few other students that he'd been suffering from strange dreams that led him to do the unthinkable. He claimed to have committed a gun-related murder at a residence near his home back in Montana. He claimed to have been plagued by nightmares every single night. Hmm. In his dreams, Shadow would walk up to a house in the dark of night and would sneak in through a window, walk up the stairs, into the master bedroom, where he would then shoot the man sleeping in the bed, and then he'd shoot the woman, killing them both. Hmm. He'd wake up from his dreams in a cold sweat, horrified at himself, but the nightmares wouldn't let up, and he claimed that he eventually had to follow through on them. His claims were substantiated when he pulled out a 9mm Smith & Wesson that he showed his friends, prompting one of them to call the police and tell them what Shadow had said. Wow. In the months leading up to this point in the story, Shadow had been charged with vandalism. So Newburgh police went to his dorm and told him they needed to talk to him about his vandalism case. So they brought him to the station for further questioning. When he arrived at the police station, he was met with homicide detectives from Montana who asked him about his involvement in the Bosco murders. 
Initially, he maintained that he didn't know who the Boscos were and he didn't hurt or kill anyone. But after three hours of intense questioning, he began telling the detectives about his nightmares. He told them that in August of that year, he had the most powerful dreams that he'd ever had in his entire life, as though his dreams were calling out to him, compelling him to act on them. So around 2 a.m. on August 12th, 1993, Shadow was pulled from his nightmares by a voice telling him to get up, go to the Bosco's home, and to shoot them. He offered them a full-blown confession of the murders. He was promptly arrested and charged with two counts of deliberate murder. It turns out that police in Montana were also familiar with Shadow, whose full name was Joseph Shadow Clark. No way. That name should sound familiar. Joe Clark was the previous owner of the home and was Shadow Clark's father. No way. He was also one of the teenage boys who'd been accused of harassing and stalking Nancy. Oh. So we just got to like walk through that for a second because Daniel Brinkley had told Tony that the killer was a skinny young man. Uh Shadow Clark was 5'7 and 125 pounds at the time of his arrest. That is a small dude. He said that the killer had dark hair and inset eyes, which Shadow did. Hmm. He said that the killer was a student in the Northwestern United States, which Shadow was. Mm -hmm. He said that the killer was familiar with the home, which Shadow had lived in the Bosco house for his entire childhood. Right. Daniel also claimed that the killer was compelled by something other than reason, which I don't know about you, but I would classify a voice compelling you to murder two strangers <laughs> yes. as yes. the opposite of reason. Yes. He said wow. that the killer would be caught in December of that year, and he was. Hmm. Every single prediction. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a that's a pretty good score. All of them. Yeah. Jeez. I mean, some of those you could guess. Like, oh, it was like a young person. Sure. Which, like, you could make that inference, like, a young person would be more likely to be able to quickly climb in and out of a window unnoticed. Sure. Sure. Like, there are things like that that, like, could be guesswork, but saying he'll be apprehended in December. Mm-hmm. He's a college student here. Right. Dark hair. Nuts. Inset eyes. Some of those things are too specific. Compelled yeah. by something other than reason. Yeah. Those are very specific. Crazy to me. Yeah. In July of 1994, Shadow Clark pled guilty to two counts of deliberate murder and one count of aggravated burglary after it was discovered that he was the one who'd stolen John Bosco's gun from the home. Mm -hmm. The death penalty had been on the table in this case, and so to avoid that, he entered his guilty plea and was sentenced to 220 years in prison, and he won't be eligible for parole until he's 60 years old. Wow. He was also, just as a side note, I've seen he was 18 at the time of the crimes, Mm -hmm. and I've seen that he was 19 at the time of the crimes. Okay. So, Daniel also guessed that, 18 to 20. Yeah. Just as a thing. I I just realized I forgot to write that. (sighs) So, with answers in the case and justice being served, loved ones of John and Nancy breathed a small breath of relief, thankful for closure, but still racked with the impossible grief of losing two people that they loved so much in such a violent and senseless way. Yeah. They've spent the time since their terrible loss clinging on to happy memories of John and Nancy, tickled at the way that they loved each other so completely and how much joy they brought to each other and to everyone around them. At the same time as John and Nancy's loved ones were feeling relief, Shadow's family was crushed. Yeah. Not only was he set to spend his entire life behind bars, but they also carried the intense guilt of their son's actions. In the decades since the Bosco murders, the Clark family has been on their own grief journey and much like Tony, wonder where they went wrong or if they could have done anything different that would have kept Shadow from committing such an earth-shattering series of crimes. 
I feel like we talk about this idea probably too much, but I feel like in true crime cases, you're not just creating one victim. Mm -hmm. There are so many people that become instant victims when a case like this happens. Mm -hmm. It's like, it just keeps rippling outward and outward and outward forever. And that's, that's true of the family members of the killers. Like I think of BTK's daughter and the stuff that she's done since Mm -hmm. all of the stuff about her dad came out and like how much that has affected her life. I won't say defined because I don't think that's fair. Her identity does not rest in being BTK's daughter, but like she's written books and stuff like that. But I just feel like so many people's lives are changed forever in the worst way by things like this. Well, it, it, you have natural things that you do in response to mm-hmm. being related to somebody who has done something wrong or has had something wrong done to them. Right. Your your actions that you do really they don't define you, mm-hmm. but they do make um a they lay bit like of a, a witness. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, they lay up, and they they depending on what you're doing, they can lay a path that leads to the next decision, to the next decision, mm-hmm. to the next decision, and that can be absolutely horrifying, abusive, pain creating, mm-hmm. or it can be extremely healing. healing. Yeah. yeah, well, it just depends on kind of what those. That decisions is great are. timing for you to say that. So since then, Tony Bosco has written a handful of books about her experiences. Hmm. One of them, called Choosing Mercy, is an in-depth dive into her experience as the mother of a murder victim and offers her unique insights into how the death penalty only creates more victims and more pain. Mm. As loved ones of those who commit such terrible acts, acts bad enough to put the death penalty on the table are also torn apart. Regardless of where you stand on the death penalty, I think that stories like Tony's offer an important take on a hugely important topic. Yeah. So if you want to check any of those out, they're super cheap on Amazon. The TV show Unsolved Mysteries featured this story on their show in 1994, and it was one of the few cases that had been solved at the time that it first aired. Hmm. But there's still an element of mystery that permeates this case. How the heck did Daniel Brinkley predict all of that stuff about Shadow and his eventual capture? Hmm. That's something that we'll probably never have a clear answer for. Yeah. There's also the element of dreams and their functions. While one mother was being plagued with dreams of losing her son in a violent manner, as she watched on in horror, helpless to change his fate, another young man was also being plagued with violent dreams where he was the one doing the killing. Mm. It's all so bizarre. Yeah. But that is what I have for you today. Wow. It's crazy to me to think about how we very rarely have stories of psychics where they they aren't just kind of like making things worse, you know? Yeah. But this is a really cool instance of someone who doesn't just want to like do the right thing, but they're kind of helping somebody else Mm. reclaim some of their thoughts and some of their, their experiences. Right. And also just the, the, there's kind of that thread that runs through of dreams. Yeah. It's very strange that Tony had those dreams, had that dream that affected her so deeply. And Mm -hmm. Shadow claimed to have been having dreams. Yes. And I, though he is a murderer, I actually believe what yeah. from everything that I've read about him, that that was his experience. There was but something that he was being tormented by, tormented by, oppressed by, drawn by, whatever you want to use, what kind of, whatever kind of language you want to use. There was something that 
was planting thoughts in his head like that. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And that doesn't, you know, erase any even like semblance of accountability from him. Like, of course, the accountability still rests in Shadow's hands completely. Yeah. But it is just a very interesting added element of of mystery when we consider the dreams. Mm -hmm. So. Wow. Wow. Well, thanks for listening to the unusual, unsettling, and unsavory story today. Uh, Man, this story, I feel like, really covered kind of the whole gamut on its own. Yeah. And uh, I'm a little bit bummed. I am glad that justice seemed to be served, Mm -hmm. but it's still like, oh, man, just such a sad... Everybody kind of loses in this story. Yeah. There are no winners. Yeah. Well, for everybody that is uh, subscribed on Patreon, thank you so much for being a part of this community. Also, make sure that you uh, are liking, commenting on the posts about these stories, uh, because these are just for you guys, really. But by reacting and responding to some of them, it helps a lot of people find this podcast and jump into the Patreon community for This One's a Doozy. And with that... We'll see you tomorrow. We'll see you tomorrow. You got another episode coming. It's for everybody, but uh, you're getting a double helping day after day mm-hmm. this week. And thanks for being patient with me on that. Thank yes. you. You guys are awesome. <laughs> so tomorrow we have Bridgewater Triangle Part 2. Ooh. All right. We'll see you guys later. Bye. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.